Welcome to today's conversation, Consternation or Collaboration, the State of Digital Health Devices. We're excited to bring you perspectives from McDermott's digital health thought leaders on the trends and opportunities they're seeing in the market. Joining us today are partners Bernadette Broccolo, Sarah Hogan, and Lisa Mazur. We're here at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. I'd love to hear about some of the trends you feel are dominating the conference this year. Thank you. This is Lisa. Uh, we're seeing a lot of digital health companies, um, as well as healthcare providers that are looking to partner with digital health companies. This is a new trend. Prior years, digital health did have a presence at J.P. Morgan, but what we're seeing is that they're a very active part of the agenda for the conferences that are being held, and they just have a very strong presence here today. Uh, part of the reason may be that this was a blockbuster year for digital health investments. We saw more digital health investments than we have um, in prior years um, by a material amount, uh, upwards as much of a third. Um, so there's a lot of investment activity, which I think has drawn a lot of investors to the scene, um, whether that's PE, VC, or strategic bankers. We are seeing a lot of individuals who want to invest in the digital health community in addition to, to the typical users. Who do you think the most important or biggest players are in digital health right now? Maybe Bernadette, you could comment on that. Yes, thank you very much. At the heart of a lot of these collaborations around digital health are the academic medical centers and the National Cancer Institute uh, designated cancer centers. So you have Stanford, Duke, University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, Rush, University of Chicago, um, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Mayo, uh, all of those. They have the expertise and very Notably, as you'll hear from us, all of us today, uh, they have the data. Uh, and they have a very rich source of data, both clinical care and research data. Major tech companies are entering the scene uh, with aggression, uh, very positive aggression. Uh, they are innovators and they see an opportunity to bring their innovative skills uh, as well as get a share of the $3 trillion, uh, uh, $3 trillion um, that the healthcare industry represents in this country. Uh, and the um, data aggregators, other service providers that aren't known as major tech, but who have um, solutions to bring uh, in, in terms of um, data aggregation and analytics, we are seeing specialty lab companies, uh, lab companies who have developed laboratory developed tests around genomics, both the genomics of cancer and the genomics of the individual. Uh, we're seeing pharmaceutical companies and, as we've seen here in the uh, JP Morgan conference, investors and entrepreneurs who see a, a significant opportunity here. So how does IP figure into this landscape? IP is a really interesting question. First of all, the players in these collaborations who are pharmaceutical companies, tech companies, academic medical centers, they all think about IP in completely different ways. Pharmaceutical companies think in terms of product patents. Tech companies think in terms of software, copyright protection. And the academic medical centers, they just want to own everything. <laughs> and so you end up having these really interesting conversations about what is the IP at issue here, right? A lot of times it's data. and we can and we should do a whole podcast on what are the IP rights and data or if there are IP rights and data, but really the challenge is to get everybody to where they want to be. You don't, everybody wants to own everything. It's an emotional issue at the, at the end of the day. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that everybody has the right to do what they want to do. So what would you say those players are bringing to the table? How are they shifting the paradigm? 
Well, I think, first of all, the collaborations are shifting the paradigm. Uh, these Many of these stakeholders are, as you mentioned, um, ones who are not have not previously been in the industry other than as service or support or IT infrastructure companies. You are um, seeing new technology, art artificial intelligence is a great example. Of course, we could spend our whole time here talking about what is that mm -hmm. and, and what isn't it. And so I think it's really the, the fact that all the stakeholders are coming together to bring what they have to offer as a key piece of a big puzzle that probably no one of them could bring on their own. Everybody needs one another, it's a symbiotic relationship. But it's early, it's early. So, but I think the collaboration itself is is got the potential for the paradigm shift. You mentioned it's early. What what do you think the next steps might be? You mentioned artificial intelligence, machine learning is also a big trend we're seeing at the conference this year. What are some of the other exciting areas in technology that you see coming down the pike in the next year? Yeah, I think um, Sarah will talk a little bit more about this in some of the shapes and sizes and forms of these collaborations, but I definitely see uh, precision medicine and all the technology around precision me medicine, and I mentioned genomics, and what's really fascinating, uh, as I've discovered as I do a lot of this work, that we're not talking about just the human genome, we're talking about the genome of the cancer and how the cancer mutates and how that can be matched up. There is a lot of significant activity around that and some of those initiatives are further along. So where you have Quest who has partnered with Memorial Sloan Kettering and now IBM is uh, in the mix with that. This is all public information. They are further along in really serious uh, research and development around that space. So uh, Sarah will talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, uh, Sarah, what does collaboration in this space look like today and what's working? And maybe conversely, what's not working? Yeah, so I'll take those separately. As far as what it looks like today, it's, it's a really exciting picture and it's all over the map. When I first started practicing law, I was doing both life sciences and software deals. And those were completely separate. Life sciences companies weren't talking about software, software wasn't talking about life sciences, and Bernadette just mentioned genomics. Um, genomics is a really interesting space enabled by computing power, and you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it took a year to sequence one gene, and today you can sequence an entire genome in three days. So it's really enabling the access to this data and the computing power is really enabling more personalized views of how to treat patients. So some of the, there's some really interesting collaborations that I'll use as an example, because I don't think there's one picture of what the collaboration space looks like. Um, a really interesting joint venture that has been announced is the Sanofi and Verily joint venture, where they're, they're dealing with diabetes, uh, trying to come up with a whole diabetes solution also, Partners Healthcare, from where I'm from, Boston, has uh, a center for clinical data science, and they announced an interesting transaction with General Electric, where they're taking multidisciplinary teams, which this is all from a public announcement, but I can only assume that to mean it's people from both sides working together, and their, their goal is to improve clinician productivity and patient outcomes. And that's, you know, what from what Bernadette was saying, 
every people coming together because they don't have the tools to solve it on their own. And it really does come down to the patients. Bernadette? I wanted to add something um, in response to your prior question about the changing of the paradigm and what we're going to see. And again, back to this conference, we have heard predominantly the reference to consumerism and consumer engagement and patient engagement. And a lot of the um, outside of the genomics and the research space, the digital health tools uh, being implemented through mobile devices and other, that, uh, the large focus of that is on engaging the consumer and engaging the patient. And that's really in many respects where healthcare is going and digital health is going along in that direction. How do you think some of these projects might go about engaging the consumer? Are you seeing any trends in that area? Uh, well, I think the use of the Apple devices is certainly predominant. Uh, and they are using um, the iPhone and the iWatch, actually. It's reported publicly that Apple is looking to find more um, basis for the use of its iWatch because it hasn't been the blockbuster that it was uh, it was hoping. So basically, you're, you're putting apps that are going to be wellness apps. They're going to be glucose monitors. And then that data will be fed into the cloud. And now we're looking to get that information back to the, pay, to the provider. So this is Lisa. And to... To build off of what Bernadette just said, so a lot of these products like the continuous glucose monitors and the apps, they've been around for, for years now. And we're seeing, as Bernadette said, increased adoption because consumers are demanding access to um, convenient quality care that's cost efficient. Um, people are subject to high deductible health plans. People don't have time to take off of work to go to the doctor or to take off work to go to the doctor to take an elderly family member. So they, they really do want these convenient tools. And so, so to build off of what Bernadette said, those products have been around for some time, but what we're seeing is that they're getting better. And by that, we mean that they're becoming more and more seamless. They're easier to use. They're just better integrated into your lifestyle, but also better integrated into your healthcare provider's practice. So the data is not only just available to you or perhaps to a family member or another member of your support system, but it's also available to your healthcare providers, whether that's a social worker or a psychologist or a physician or a nurse. Um, it, it really spans the entire healthcare industry. And the value of that is it allows healthcare providers to do their jobs better. Um, and, and the key to that is that they're able to get the data easier than before. They don't have to log into 15 different websites to get the data anymore. It's now interoperable with their EHR systems or there's interfaces that allow them to get the data through one portal as opposed to 15 different portals where they have to log in at 11 o'clock at night after charting for four hours a day. So I think that the trend that we're seeing is that the products that have been around and have been successful to date, um, those that have survived, are now are now accelerating because they figured out how to be seamless and further integrate within the healthcare delivery system. So, Sarah, uh, what does collaboration in the space look like today? Uh, what's working and maybe what's not working? Yeah, it's really hard to say what's working today. It's just too early to tell. But there are a couple of themes, and as you heard us talking about the data, there's a lot of focus on the data, both to feed a machine learning algorithm, to solve a problem, to precision medicine, and you know to, to just dig down and understand more about the patient and the probable solutions. 
The other thing we heard yesterday, we had a great digital health panel. Um, one of our panelists was Liz Rocket, director from Kaiser Permanente Ventures. And one of the things she said really, really struck me. She said, you got to focus on a specific problem. There are a lot of solutions out there without a home. So from her perspective, she's going to find out what problem are you focusing on and go to her stakeholders and say, do you need that problem solved? And that's something that I think is really, you know, that that's with the collaborations that are working, they're focused on something specific. We've talked a bit about um, health devices, the proliferation of popular consumer devices. I'd love to hear um, your take on the regulatory landscape. We see popular commercial devices like the Apple Watch, and then on the other end of the spectrum in medical devices, very heavy duty, he heavily regulated health devices. And I think we're seeing a convergence of those in the marketplace. So I'd love to hear some of the regulatory landscape around that. This is Lisa. So we um, had a panel discussion earlier today on digital health and private equity investment. And the co-chair of our digital health practice, Vanessa Pollard, um, spoke to the audience about how um, the way that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is now approaching the regulation of medical devices. The term medical device has been very broadly defined for about 100 years to basically be any product or tool or apparatus that's used for the delivery of healthcare to treat, to diagnose patients. It's an incredibly broad definition, and it's unclear if your iPhone, for example, that can track a fetal heart rate constitutes a regulated medical device. Um, or what about a connected scale that weighs you and then sends data to a physician? Is that, a, is that an apparatus tool or device that's used to treat a patient and for use for diagnosis? It's unclear. And the FDA in the past three or four weeks or so has actually come out with quite a bit of guidance that um, documents its position to take a less regulated um, view of certain digital health products. So um, this has been particularly helpful in the case of software programs, for example, where a software program could be used um, on a consumer tool, like a, uh, an iPhone or a tablet or some other device or a watch, for example, um, but gathers health data and then sends that data on to a healthcare provider. Uh, the FDA's position has been that they don't have um, the time and resources, frankly, to really manage the onslaught of requests and questions that they're getting about the FDA's position on those types of products. And their view is that they are not going to regulate them at the present time, but they can change their position if they feel that it's in the best interest of public safety to do so. Uh, so this is a really key development that has been, as Vanessa said, a game changer in the digital health industry and is something that um, was very um, highly welcomed by a lot of the digital health solution developers that we work with. This is Sarah. I, I just wanted to add, because I, I've heard Bakul Patel talk about this, and he talks about it as it is um, a trust issue, right? It's a, we want to figure out how we can trust these companies to put out software products that will comply with the FDA, that can be used in the marketplace. And so that's one of the things that I've heard FDA is focusing on. And Bernadette, just continuing in the theme of trust, another really focal point of the trust question is the data. 
and the integrity of the data, the accuracy of the data, the completeness of the data, particularly when the data is coming from the consumer and being generated from mobile apps. People were uh, a bit concerned initially about electronic health records and the implementation of those and the regulation of those. That's actually the friendly confines right now um, because it's structured data that comes in through a regulated provider and is really in a safe home uh, with and well protected. So what is the data? Where does it come from? Uh, in what form? Uh, there's a lot of unstructured data, exogenous data from the internet, from literature, and it's all going to be aggregated and used. So providers are asking, probably more than consumers, can I really rely on this data? And Lisa mentioned uh, the effort to find a pathway uh, from the iWatch or the other mobile device into the EHR. That's uncharted territory right now. And there actually are collaborations that have been formed around getting the consumer-generated data nicely combined in with the EHR data with integrity. So that's huge. That That's a really big issue. Adding on to the um, discussion about the regulatory barriers that might exist, the challenges that exist in, in following up on the concept of trust. Um, so while the FDA has perhaps loosened some of its regulatory oversight of these products, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has actually picked up its activity and oversight of these digital health tools. There were two cases um, recently in New York, for example, where state attorney generals uh, viewed that a digital health solution failed to live up to its promises. It did not perform or deliver the functionality that it had been marketed to perform. And they con were concerned that, that such failure for the product to live up to those um, to its marketing uh, promises was an unfair and deceptive trade act, uh, which misled consumers who had purchased the app and had relied upon it to perform the function that, that it said that it would perform for them. Uh, similarly, the FTC also oversees consumer protection type issues, um, and um, its authority to do so has existed for some time, but we've seen increased um, oversight and investigation of companies that hold themselves out to the public as doing something, um, even if it's something like a consumer wellness tool, and it may not even be a device that's used by a healthcare provider, it could just be something that a consumer purchases on the market for, for use themselves. If, if, it, if it says that it's going to do something and it, a reasonable consumer should, would believe that, then, they are com then they're subject, the company is subject to potential liability or regulatory scrutiny if it fails to actually um, do what it's supposed to do. But more importantly, if it, has, if it fails to have the data to back up that it can actually do what it says it's going to do. So what are some of the non-regulatory barriers you're seeing? This is Lisa. So the biggest issue I think raises from the fact that these are these players come from very different industries. They have different backgrounds, they speak different languages in the sense that that they have different objectives and goals. Um, different executive management teams with different focus areas. So for example, you have an academic medical center that
that is a 501c3 public charity. It's a nonprofit with a nonprofit mission to advance research, to provide quality care to the members of their communities. Um, and you may have like a pharmaceutical company that's a for-profit entity with shareholders um, to whom it has to report. And their financial objectives um, are different in that sense. So when you have collaborations between players who come from very different industries and different perspectives on issues, we're, we have seen that they, they ultimately speak a different language and there's a bit of translation that needs to occur so that they can both uh, communicate what their goals and objectives are and how we're going to get there in a way that resonates with both sides so that the arrangement, the collaboration can be a successful one. Um, like Bernadette said, a lot of these new players are not traditional healthcare clients. Um, and so part of um, the work that we have done in the past has helped to translate for them what are their responsibilities as they enter the healthcare market. So I know that this is a question focused on non-regulatory issues, but part of it is educating them on what their new regulatory obligations will be, but even more importantly, what their new obligations will be as a partner, potentially, of a regulated healthcare entity. So even if these issues don't apply directly to um, a large health technology company, you know, that's now entering the technology space with a focus on healthcare, they are now partnering with healthcare providers, for example, who have a lot of different legal and regulatory and compliance obligations that apply to them, but also have patients to whom they have a duty um, to protect their data, for example, among other things. Bernadette. This is Bernadette. I'd like to weigh in on that protection of the data. And I think it's um, one of the um, key aspects of these collaborations where we see regulatory and non-regulatory bar barriers converge. Um, the, the Everybody in the mix is regulated by some laws relating to data privacy, um, both the, vendor, the vendors and the providers alike. Um, the, the providers in the healthcare industry sector, the covered entities under HIPAA, they are subject to a much broader and additional regulatory scheme, both in the patient care context and the research context. And it, as we've all said, it all starts with the data. And there's a lot of excitement and a lot of uh, anxiousness to transfer data. You need to stop, look, and listen. What data? Um, where is it coming from? Uh, in what for what purpose was it originally collected? Was it research? Was it clinical care? Did the patient consent to you using it for additional purposes? Is it research? Do you need to go to an IRB and get approval um, to even hand this data over to anyone else in identifiable form? Is it going to be de-identified? I think about 80% of the time we hear that and we ask the question, what do you mean by de-identification? And we have the conversation, we find it's not really, they're not really talking about de-identification from a regulatory point of view. And then I think the other thing that is um, really important for the parties to discuss um, that they sometimes don't want to take the time to, and again, they have to understand each other's mindsets, is where is the data going out 
um, along the evolution of whatever the digital health initiative is. Initially, it's rather confined, but over time, it's going to be much more expansive, and the original source of the data is going to lose more and more control um, as, as it evolves. So really understanding that vocabulary from different perspectives, because it none of it can happen without the data, but if the way that data is used and collected and reused and deployed isn't done right at the front end, you will probably at some point hit a brick wall or be looking down the table at some of the regulators that Lisa described. So how, how do you counsel clients on uh, how to mitigate some of those situations and so they don't hit those brick walls? This is Sarah none of this is intuitive, right? So these regulatory challenges that we've been talking about, whether or not something's a medical device, whether or not HIPAA applies, the, the companies that are not used to dealing with these regulations don't understand how to play there, right? So we hear companies saying, well, I, I have a B2C model, so I don't have to comply with HIPAA. But then once they partner with a provider or another covered entity, they're now a business associate. So it's not that easy. And, and I guess what I would say is they have to listen <laughs> um, to their counsel and not a plug for lawyers. But um, <laughs> we, ha you know, we have some really, I, I love bringing in my regulatory colleagues. Um, and just as an example that it's not intuitive, again, bringing in our digital health lunch yesterday, uh, Sean Duffy, the CEO of Omada Health, said when he first started Omada, he knew nothing about healthcare and that he had a really steep learning curve. And I guess I would just say to all the technology companies and even the pharma companies who haven't dealt with the health regulatory scheme, they have to think about what the healthcare model is and get, get themselves educated. And one comment, because we're using the word barriers, I think many people expect that lawyers to use that term. And I think it's very important to, to reemphasize emphasize the point that Sarah just made, which is that if you address these at the front end, they're not barriers, they're planning considerations. And more importantly, you will find if you put that compliance infrastructure in place at the front end in the right way, you will probably be ha have flexibility to do things that you didn't even envision at the front end. So it's really planning considerations and not barriers if you do address them up front. So shifting from planning considerations and past talk of barriers, how would you characterize the opportunities for companies that can get it right and do get it right? Well, I'll start, and I'll certainly ask my colleagues uh, to chime in. But I think going back to what Lisa said about the different types of players here, uh, some are going to be able to return big dollars to their shareholders, and they're going to make you know a lot more profit. They're going to have a lot more sales of their products and devices and services. Um, patients are going to benefit because they're going to be more engaged. They'll, we will have population health solutions and wellness solutions that prevent... Um, uh, the need for the acute level of care. Many of these initiatives focused on the patient care are looking not only at treating disease, but actually pre predicting disease and preventing disease. And a lot of the work in precision medicine is going to help them. Academic medical centers will be fulfilling their mission of research on discovery, 
uh, and, and new solutions. So if they all work together and play together well and plan well ahead of time, everybody's going to come out ahead. But the most important thing, I think, for certain of the players is the patient. And the uh, last, le last comment I would make, and I welcome the comments of others, is that some of the collaborators we're talking about who are often these days referred to as the disruptors, you know, the, the big tech companies coming in. I think some of them will eventually get into healthcare. They're, they're really gonna be part of the health industry as opposed to some solutions on the side or, or an add-on. And that's what people are waiting to see is who's really gonna be, be delivering healthcare in the future and is it gonna look very different than it does today. Um, so some things we can say very likely will happen. Some are still unknowns as to what the benefits will be. Yeah, I just want to comment on the opportunities for life sciences companies. So when we first started talking about digital health, we I think you've all heard the term beyond the pill, right? We used to hear this from pharmaceutical companies a lot. They need to figure out a, a way to wrap services around their products so that they can pro be more profitable on the whole. One of the really interesting things is we're now seeing pharmaceutical companies move from the services side to the digital product side. So perhaps there will be you know, more digital pills on the market. And it's, it's a really good opportunity for pharmaceutical companies to improve their products. The other, one other example on a pharmaceutical company side is that it, there's also an opportunity to learn about the patients and to understand what they're doing and what their behavior is and how their product is being used. So again, they don't have to sell more, more pills. They can make their pills better. They can, you know, reduce opioid addiction and, you know, really further healthcare as a whole. I think building off of what Sarah just said was that the exactly, for example, the reference to opioid addiction, it's the ability to identify to solve a nationwide problem, a worldwide problem that is um, impacting um, hundreds of thousands or millions of individuals. It's the potential to be, you know, a brand name in the home of Americans. It's, you, this is a solution to your health needs. Um, and this company um, is offering you a way to address whatever particular issue it is that's keeping you up at night. Um, so I think in addition to revenue generation, um, and um, opportunity to expand your business model and to enter new markets. It's also the ability to solve a particular problem and the you know, fame and recognition that comes along with that. And we've seen a number of digital health unicorns, I guess you could call them, who received a ton of investment money, have gotten the media, the, the glory that comes with really hitting the market and um, making um, an unprecedented splash. A lot of that is what a lot of these companies are, are looking for. Um, and 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 some of them have earned it. So it should be a pretty exciting 2018. So Lisa, Bernadette, Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for listening. For more legal news and analysis of all things digital, check out McDermott's Of Digital Interest blog. Copyright McDermott, Will & Emery, all rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without prior written consent of McDermott, Will & Emery is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. <laughs>